YouTube, Facebook, wherever you get your uh, online content. Um, and first up, we've got Ryan Cave. We've got Ryan Cave. He is an executive for the United Football Players Association. It is the union for football players in the United Foot uh, U.S. Football League. Uh, Ryan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it. Ryan, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry about that. I think. Thanks, and, and thanks for having me this morning. Yes, thank you so much for uh, uh, for hanging out. Um, I know that you're a, a busy fella, and uh, you know I, you mentioned on the phone yesterday that you are uh, you're actually a former professional football player yourself, and and you were uh, part of the union. Yes, I was uh, in the Arena Football League uh, for 10 plus years up in Canada, uh, a little over a year up there as well. Um, so I've, I've been a part of sports associations, sports unions for my whole entire professional career. So just being a part of this with the USW and the U, um, UFPA, um, what we've done to get the players in the, the USFL, a uh, great collective bargaining agreement is is uh, you know I mean, it's amazing for those guys and uh, looking forward to a great year, too, with them. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really I'm pretty happy with uh, uh, with the CBA that you described to me yesterday. You said that the ratification vote was 100 uh, percent, didn't have a single person vote. No, which is pretty amazing. And but before we get into that, I guess I wanted to uh, start off with with um you know some background on the U.S. Football League. When when did they uh, when did that league start? Uh, so the U.S. the the USFL was back in the eighties. Um, you know they were they were back then and they rivaled uh, the NFL for a little while um, in the springtime, and then they kind of had their demise when they kind of went to the fall um, when uh, when Donald Trump kind of took them kind of to the fall, and uh, they really didn't pan out against the NFL back then. Um, but then they came back, uh, Fox, Fox, Sport, uh, Fox sports actually bought the league and, um, decided to give it another run in the springtime. Uh, a couple former guys of mine who spearheaded this, Kenneth Farrell and Nick Temple, um, and also Jake Payne, 
those guys uh, played in the old AAF and the old uh, XFL that Vince McMahon had owned at the time. And oh, wow. those leagues ceased to exist. And, um, you know, they, made, they didn't make it through COVID. And then mm. besides that, they the guys really wanted to uh, make sure if another spring league came around that they were in the forefront and make sure the players had what they need. So they kind of brought me over from um, the Arena Football League Players Union when, when uh, you know, I mean, we ceased operations before COVID. Um and it was just like a match made in heaven. You know, we planned things out for a little over a year, two years. Um, and then when it was time, when the when the USFL finally came around, and we were boots on the ground and, and getting things going for guys, and a lot of guys already knew that they didn't want to have the same reoccurrences that happened in those other former leagues. They needed, they knew they wanted the protections, and we were able to get them organized. And and you know, what I mean, everything else is uh, everything else is history. And and so some of those other leagues, uh, they were not unionized. Is that is that what I'm hearing? No. So spring football in a whole has never been has never been unionized. Besides the uh, Arena Football League, um, you know, and they they've been around for you know I mean 25 plus years off and right. on. So um, and so what were some of the what were some of the issues that that some other you know spring players in spring football leagues faced uh, that you know that they weren't they weren't unionized? What what were some of those issues that these players wanted to make sure that they uh, that they kind of nipped this in the bud? So guys, really, you run into a lot of problems with workers' compensation. You run into a lot of problems with with housing. Some of the leagues ran into problems with with funding. Um, so making sure guys had those adequate protections, the rights to second medical, uh, the, the proper equipment. Everything from uh, temporary housing, because, you know, what I mean, the guys won't make, you know, what I mean, what the NFL guys make, obviously. Right. But, you know, what I mean, for for, you know, what I mean, a guy looking to carry on his professional for uh, his professional career on the football field, you know, what I mean, the next three to five years, you know, what I mean, the lifespan of football players and long anyway, you just want to make sure guys have the protections in place. So those guys are just looking for like, hey, if I'm going to do this for the next, you know, I mean, these leagues paying out three, four months over the year. I want to make sure we have the protections in place just in case something happens because it's a, it's a dangerous sport. So you you need to have those protections right. in place. Absolutely, and so, um, and so you know because these these folks you know sounds like they were pretty familiar with the history of spring leagues and some of the abuses that players faced, and so they they pretty quickly. Uh, they they pretty quickly uni- unionized after this league was was started back up again and and what uh, what was that what was that vote count I know that it was pretty lopsided but do do you recall the vote count off the top of your head? Yeah, that it, it seems like I'm remembering something like that. So very you know the the uh, the players were able to win their union very handily, and so I'm sure that that played a, a large role in negotiations when y'all were at the table with, uh, you know, with management, you know, management knowing that, uh, that that the union had such high support among the players, among the workers. Yeah. So the thing with, you know, I mean, when you're organizing these guys, these guys, a lot of these guys are young. So a lot of these mm-hmm. guys are fresh out of college. So they don't they, they don't know what a player's association is besides what they've heard with the NFL. So a lot of guys were just, it was more so educating the guys. Mm. So once you educate them, 
and give them the knowledge, then it, the rest of it's, you know, what I mean, the rest of it's history. So, I mean, you rely on the older guys who are part of the league to educate the younger guys. And that's why, you know, what I mean, when the when the when we ratified the the contract, you know, what I mean, not one person voted it down. It's 100 percent because, you know, what I mean, once guys get educated, like, hey, we need this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, there is a chance that at the end of the day, when you're dealing with labor and you're dealing with management on the other side, you, you know, I mean, you're going to run into your problems. Football players and sports in general is, is no different. Um, so, I mean, once guys realize that and they, and they realize their worth um, because they're the product on the field. Right. Um, and, and you know what I mean, without the without the players, none of this, you know what I mean, nothing happens, nothing works. So um, having them, you know what I mean, realize those facts and everything like that, that, you know, I mean, we we feel as though we got a great deal, great fair deal for the for the first contract, and you know, I mean, the sky's the limit from there. Yeah, and so let let's talk about that first contract. Before you do of, that, Jacob, oh, okay. I was just going to say real quick that uh, I think one of the really cool things about your your story you're sharing right now is that there are folks listening who this resonates in their workplace, and they're doing something very very different than playing professional football, right? You know, whatever job they have. Mm. They're running into the same dynamics of the older guys got to educate the younger folks, right? A lot of folks coming into the job, the workplace without that knowledge of a union or and what a union can do for them and what not having a union means for them. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope folks listening can, can take that away that whatever labor you're doing, whether you're, you know, out working in construction, you're in an office, you know, like the federal employees we spoke of earlier this morning. Or you're doing something, you know, a little outside the box. You're actually playing professional sports for a living. As you said, your your labor, there's management, there's going to be conflict. You need to have each other's back. Uh, and so I just, man, I'm really, really excited to, to hear this about the USFL union. I can't wait to watch some USFL games and know that I am cheering on my union brothers uh, on the field. That's just, that's really cool to me as a football fan. I just... Had to say that before we get on track. Yeah, man. It's at the end of the day, once the guy, like I said, once the guys realize, like, hey, the union, like the union, we are the union, the mm-hmm. players on the field. So at the end of the day, it's 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 what we want, protections what we can get, and we're only as strong. I mean, we're only as strong together. So once guys figure that out, um, everybody bought into it. Absolutely, and the um, my and you said that the opening games are going to be on April fifteenth, and the schedule isn't out yet, but there's probably going to be a game in Birmingham on that day on on April fifteenth, and and uh, and so once we get that schedule and the time out, um, I told you that that we might um, we might talk to some of our uh, sisters and brothers in the labor council over in Birmingham and and see if we can't get a get a big group of union folks over there to cheer y'all on on your first game. Um, so we'll uh, we'll definitely be keeping in touch with y'all and, and uh, keeping the conversation flowing. But yeah, let's talk let's talk about this contract and, and what y'all were what what were y'all able to get in this contract? So some of the main things that guys faced in year one was uh, with it being every team. So USF has eight eight ball clubs and all of them are uh, to kind of make the league more sustainable, which, you know, I mean, Fox did was they brought everybody to Birmingham um, and they did one centralized hub city for the first year and built it and building it out from there. Year two, we had four hub cities, but for this year, um, for the, for year one, it was, um, it was one hub city. So guys were really, guys, you know I mean? Ran into some issues down there with, you know I mean? Over 400 players being in one, you know I mean? City in Birmingham isn't, you know I mean? Great city. It's just, it's not the biggest place. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, guys ran into some housing issues there, facility issues, problems there uh, with, you know, I mean, practice times and meetings and, and, and what have you not. Um, just typical things you run into with with uh, building out a league in, in, in year one. Um, but guys, main things they really wanted to go after was a little bit more compensation, um, housing, because, the, you know, I mean, they had to take care of their own housing for three months. And then, you know, I mean, having to have having to deal with housing in a different city and then having your own mm-hmm. personal situation, wherever you're from, I mean, that's an added cost, an added burden. Yeah. So guys really wanted to um, kind of attack the housing um, and then more medical, more medical protections for guys. Uh, so those were the three main bases um, that, that the bargaining committee really wanted. Um, so once we uh, were able to get into bargaining and talk with the league, uh, they really went after those three things and we were able to get a, uh, I think it was a 17 or 18% increase for active players. The inactive rosters went up to, I think they were about 60% increase. If they don't quote me, I don't have the deal right in front of me. But they went from um, inactive, went up uh, about 1500 $1, bucks. Um, so, I mean, it brought their total compensation to for active players to around 60000 for, you know what I mean, three months. Um, and then, you know I mean, they also have a housing stipend that the league provided for them. So guys will be able to go out and get their housing in their city. Uh, so the the four hub cities this year are Birmingham, Canton, Ohio, uh, Detroit, Michigan, and Memphis, uh, Tennessee. So they will be in those four cities, um, and they will be afforded housing there from the league in the stipend. So guys will be able to get their own housing. Um, the medical protections also were a huge gain. Guys have the right to second medical workers' compensation in those particular states because, as you know, some some states don't. Um, don't look at professional football players as, uh, as you know, I mean, workers. So they don't provide, mm-hmm. like in Florida, they don't have workers' compensation for professional sports players. So those, mm-hmm. so those teams and those, le- I mean, those teams in those states will have to, uh, the league will have to get the policy somewhere else. Um, so um, each team has those, you know, I mean, great policies in place, and you know, I mean, they have right to second medical and, and whatnot. So just those added protections. Uh, were really big gains. Guys have travel bonuses. I mean, travel, travel uh, reimbursement stuff to and from camp. They have per diem. There's certain working hour restrictions on a work day. Uh, so guys just don't get beat up. Certain practice times, what you can do during practice, what you can't, how long guys can be on the field. Um, like I said, there's no difference between a football contract. It's just knowing what goes into detail into a football. What What is a work day or what does a work schedule look like for a football player? Uh, mm-hmm. so once we got those things hammered out, like I said, the deal was, was great. Everybody off the board, the player reps had their, had their input into it. And, um, once, you know I mean? They recommended it to the entire unit bargaining unit. The players knew they had a great deal on the table. Um, and, um, uh, you know I mean? It's a three-year deal with a one-year opener after each, after each year. So players will be able to go back and, and, you know I mean? get more things and and each year. So uh, it's an overall great deal for both sides. And I mean, Fox was actually a willing dance partner for us. So um, once we won the election, they were forthcoming and they really wanted to get something, something done and and move forward. Um, So, I mean, I I will, I will give Fox that they're due with that. They were, uh, they were forthcoming and they were a, a, a great, they're a great partner to have. Well, that's good to hear as well. I mean, and that gives me just another reason to, you know, to feel good about this league coming on board for sure. Yeah, yeah, and the um, you know the 
the uh, I was really impressed by the um, um, and and maybe and and maybe it's you know maybe I shouldn't be so impressed, but by the the sixty thousand dollars for uh, three three months of when this when the league is is on is so important because even though they're only playing games for three months, right? They've still got to work for the league the whole year, even if they're not getting compensated for the whole year, because they've got to stay in shape. They've got to, you know, make sure that they're still practicing and all of this stuff. And so even if they're doing some other jobs the rest of the year, they still have to maintain that. And so that is work. That's labor that they're having to do for this. And so to have a reasonable salary, $60,000 in a year, uh, as a base, um, you know, I think that that's a really great starting point uh, as this league gets gets kicked off, and and you know, ho- hoping to uh, to see it go see it go even higher. But but and then you know, those worker protections as, as far as safety and workers' compensation goes, because I mean, football is a you know, it's a full contact sport. <laughs> I mean, it's like very very uh, there's a very high risk there, and and so the idea that that you wouldn't have something like a worker's compensation uh, would, would be ludicrous. And so it's, it's, those are very important protections, I think. Right. And it, you're dealing with the medical protections. I mean, we all saw another union brother, DeMar Hamlin, with the Buffalo mm-hmm. Bills go down. Mm-hmm. So having that, you know, I mean, we have emergency medical action plan in place, concussion protocols, and all of that good stuff we have in the contract as well. So, um, I mean, you see firsthand what it can do, and it saved the life. So having those same protections afforded to the players, whether they're in the NFL or USFL, XFL, or have what have you, uh, it, it is uh, is great to have. So, yeah. yeah. Ryan, uh, do you think that there's anything that that you wanted to uh, make sure we we touched on before we let you go? Um, man, like I said, we're just looking forward to a great year too in the USFL. Um, like I said, it was a great win for the players. They, the league, it's a great football, it's, it's a great football for, for anyone who's an avid football fan looking to want to watch some great football in the springtime. Uh, like I said, there's eight ball clubs all around the U.S. in those four different hub cities. It's, it's a great talent on the field. Uh, around 40 guys got invited to NFL camps. I believe seven, I believe around 10 guys ended up sticking the whole season. One guy was named all pro, the kick returner for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Turpin. Uh, he was the MVP of the, of the uh, USFL last season. So, like I said, there's a great product on the field. Uh, tune in. They're going to be on Fox, Fox Sports, um, NBC. So they play primetime games on, on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And uh, if you're in town, I'll be around in Birmingham. I'll be around in the uh, in the different hub cities. And like I said, if anybody has any questions, you can always reach out to me on all social media. Plan those Ryan Cave. You can search me. Um, Big Cave, Big Cave 68 on Instagram, Ryan Cave on Twitter. Um, so I'm, I'm out there. Um, but I, I, like I said, I'm great to, grateful you guys having me on. I'm looking forward to doing this again sometime. All right, brother. Look forward to meeting you in Birmingham sometime. Thanks for coming on. Ryan Cave, executive for the United Football uh, Players Association affiliated with the United Steelworkers. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm I'm excited for USFL. Seriously, that's yeah. <clears throat> uh, that's some that's some awesome stuff. I I know we've talked in the show a little bit about athletes and and, and some of the exploitation they face mm-hmm. as workers in a really unique situation, putting their body on the line. And uh, we've talked about organizing uh, in the minor league baseball league, for example, mm-hmm. and in some of the contract issues that that took place with major league baseball. So uh, love to see. 
my love of sports and my love of labor unions intersect. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this 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 keep the sports labor uh, content coming. I'm always down for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, while we're talking about entertainment stuff, you had a. Uh, you know, and I've always I've always been a fan of songs, and I think I think we should sing more as a as a movement. Um, I, I'm a big fan of that. But uh, but you you had some you had some stuff that you, that you wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, songs and films related to labor, right? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, wanted to look at a couple new segments or uh, one new segment uh, starting today. So we know that organized labor is making a resurgence in this country. But there's no disputing the long, steady decline in unionized American workers over the past several decades. With fewer and fewer folks directly connected to the labor movement and its legacy, it makes cultural representations of the labor movement all the more important, in my view. And with that in mind, uh, we have a new segment on the Valley Labor Report where we will be highlighting a labor song and film each month. Uh, so, yeah, I think this was a, a great segue to talk about sports and labor uh, and then transition over into the entertainment sector. Uh, I agree with you. I I think there's something very powerful about singing uh, together as a movement. You know, if you've never had the opportunity to be in a big room with a bunch of union brothers and sisters and sing Solidarity Forever, for example, uh, you know, that's one of those experiences that you just can't replicate. And, you know, it's something that I think really does uh, lift our spirits and, and give us just give us that drive to keep going. Um, so starting off with the labor film of the month, I'm going to go with kind of a traditional pick uh, to start us off. I am going to go with Harlan County, USA, direct, directed by Barbara Koppel and released in 1976. No discussion of important labor films or even important American documentaries in general is complete without mention of this film. I'm going to quote from Criterion. Barbara Koppel's Academy Award-winning Harlan County, USA, unflinchingly documents a grueling coal miner strike in a small Kentucky town. With unprecedented access, Koppel and her crew captured the miners' sometimes violent confrontations with strike breakers, local police, and company thugs. Featuring a haunting soundtrack with legendary country and bluegrass artists Hazel Dickens, Merle Travis, Sarah Gunning, and Florence Reese, the film is a heartbreaking record of the 13 month struggle between a community fighting to survive and a corporation dedicated to the bottom line. Uh, I know you're a big fan of this film as well, Jacob. Personally, I couldn't help but make connections to the ongoing UMWA strike in Warrior Met uh, down in Brookwood which is, as we mentioned earlier, <laughs> Alabama's longest-running strike. Uh, you know, I'd seen it years before, but I did watch it uh, within the past year and uh, really just kind of hit different, mm. having having been exposed to the strike down in Brookwood and, and covered that strike. Uh, so there's a lot of lot of parallels there. Um, and I just got to say, I mean, there's there's a reason it's on every list like this, because there are so many moments and, re- and scenes that will resonate. Uh, there's the woman, Lois, who pulls a pistol out of her bra at a meeting. Uh, that was a trip. Yeah. Um, there's unfortunately, you know, it's it's there's a tragic conclusion and the, the fatal shooting towards the end is, is really hard to forget. Um, 
one of the scenes that stood out to me a lot was when the miners went to New York City to picket. Again, you know, parallels to the current UMWA struggle. And there was this conversation with an NYPD cop on the street. And I don't know the cop's backstory. I don't think we ever learned anything about the cop's backstory. But he certainly seemed like, you know, a blue-collar background, uh, blue-collar kind of guy. And it was really fascinating for me to watch and listen as he was talking with these Kentucky miners and hearing about their struggle. And you could tell how sympathetic he was. And you could tell, like, he, he I mean, he was pulling for them. And so you have that contradiction there between mm. his sympathies for their struggle. You know, once he had the opportunity to see what they were doing, why they were there in New York to pick it, uh, and hear from the miners themselves what was happening, you know, his heart went out to him. Yeah. Meanwhile, his colleagues down in Kentucky, the local lo law enforcement, are on the side of the company. Right. And to me, that kind of exemplifies a lot of the contradictions within American culture. So Harlan County, USA has been released by Criterion Collection. Uh, last I checked, it was available to stream on HBO Max. Even if you're someone who normally finds documentaries, you know, a little bit too boring or too dry, I really recommend you give this one a chance. Uh, it's as engaging as any work of fiction. And, you know, there's just something about getting to know these folks, you know, these real people and their real struggle. Uh, so... Yeah, that's I mean, my pick and, for film of the month, Labor Film of the Month, Harlan County, USA. Yeah, and I, I don't have much else to say. Other, I mean, you said it all. It's a really good film. Highly recommend it. Um, if you're looking for something to watch, definitely check that one out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so moving on to January's Labor Song of the Month, since I went with a pretty standard pick for my movie, I'll mix it up a bit and uh, highlight a pro-labor song I reckon many of you haven't heard. The song is Union Man by the great Neil Young, released on the album Hawks and Doves back in 1980. I should probably admit my bias up front that I am a huge fan of Neil Young. His solo career, his work with all these great bands and musicians like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Buffalo Springfield, Crazy Horse, rest in peace to the legend David, David Crosby. And I was, uh, I was actually writing this segment and picked... The song before Crosby passed, and you know, after I heard that news, of course, I had to I had to make this the song of the month. Um, so, despite Neil being one of my all-time favorite musicians, I actually didn't know he had this song. Um, it's kind of a deep cut, so I, I, you know, wasn't very familiar with it until pretty recently. Uh, so, shout out to Jack, my father-in-law, a retired UAW member, also a huge Neil Young fan. Who turned me on to this song? Yeah, uh, now, now he that's knew surprising. I had to hear it. He just knew <clears throat> that. Well, it's surprising that that you hadn't heard it because I had heard it before. Really? Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, somehow I missed it, uh, and you know I've been listening to Neil since I was fifteen, uh, but somehow I never came across this song until my thirties, I believe. Um, so it's definitely classic Neil Young with a mix of rock and country. It's got a silly side to it. Uh, they have like this mock AFM meeting in the middle of the song, you know, with uh, folks making a motion and passing the motion. AFM being the American Federation of Musicians, of course. So Neil is still holding true to his protest of Spotify. You will not find it on there, uh, but you can find it on YouTube uh, on his official channel and I'm sure elsewhere. 
So uh, I really hope you check it out. I would love to play it for you, but then we would uh, inevitably get copyright notices on our video, and uh, YouTube would complicate matters. So I'll leave it for you to, to check that out. But Neil Young's Union Man, hope you'll listen to it. It is January's Labor Song of the Month. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so... Um... And if you we... have any suggestions, by the way, I, sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. I meant to, meant to mention this. If you have any suggestions on labor songs and labor films uh, that you think would make a good film of the month or song of the month, definitely hit us up. Uh, share them in the chat. You know, send them to us on social media. Um, always love to discover new films and songs about the labor movement. Uh, and you may also just remind me of some that maybe uh, I've forgotten about. Uh, I wanted to shout out this uh, uh, tweet thread from the Greater Louisville Central Labor Council uh, really quickly before we go on to a to a longer segment. Um, But that is um, it it is such a cool thread. And and I'm going to maybe and maybe when we clip this segment, Joe can can stitch the graphics in here since I didn't get this to him in time. But uh, The thread says, Louisville, Kentucky is a union town. Over one year's time, unions have won organizing victories at Trader Joe's with Trader Joe's United. They just won their election last week. At Starbucks with Starbucks Workers United at four locations in the city. At Pizza Lupo with Restaurant Workers United Louisville. At Hein Brothers Coffee with Hein Brothers Coffee Union at all nearly 20 locations. At Sunergo's Coffee with Sunergo's Union at all four locations. At the Louisville Courier Journal with Courier Journal News Guild. At Half Price Books with Half, Pi- Half Price Books Workers United at their one location. At Cisco with the Teamsters Local 89. And at the Louisville Public Defenders with the Louisville Public Defenders Union. All in one year in That's one fantastic. city. That is an amazing, an amazing round of, of victories all in one year. And so that's just when I saw that, I I, I had to had to highlight that. Um, they wrapped up the thread saying uh, tonight's win at Trader Joe's continues to prove that working folks have momentum, especially here in Louisville, Kentucky. Whether you need better pay, health care, safety or work life balance, these wins prove that you can unionize your workplace and have a better life. Uh, absolutely. Very, very cool stuff coming out of Louisville. Um, so I wanted to give them a kudos. Uh, that's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Great to see all in one city and and particularly a city that, you know, is in the south. Uh, I know Kentucky's kind of right there on the edge, but uh, they're south enough for me as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned. We'll we'll take it. Yeah. So way to go. (laughs) Uh, I don't know uh, what your secret sauce is, but um, But yeah, if you could share any with us, that would be great. We would uh, love to uh, share notes. Um, and here's another quick, uh, a quick hit before we get to analyzing uh, Jordan Peterson's advice for getting a raise. Um, this is a news release from the Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor. In federal court, Alabama plastics manufacturer pleads guilty to willful safety regulation violation found in 2017 
OSHA investigation into workers' death. Uh, so the the statement reads um, that uh, that it, that read that. Uh, this plastics manufacturing company, it's ABC Polymer Industries, LLC. They pled guilty to a willful violation of workplace safety requirements as part of an agreement filed in federal court spurred initially by a U.S. Department of Labor investigation into a 45-year-old worker's death in, is it Helena or Helena, in August of 2017. The U.S. Department of Justice's Environmental Crime Section and the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Northern District of Alabama prosecuted the case. Uh, it was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Alabama. Um, the agreement also requires the company to pay uh, $242,928 in restitution plus funeral expenses to the fallen workers' estate. The company must also pay $176,928 in penalties and serve two years of probation with terms including participating in an enhanced compliance and auditing program. In 2018, the company paid $155,338 in penalties assessed by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration after its investigation into the incident. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor Regional Solicitor Tramel Howard in Atlanta says, Let the resolution of this case serve as a stark reminder to all employers that the U.S. Department of Labor will exhaust all available resources and actions to hold them accountable when they fail to meet federal requirements to protect the safety and health of their employees. No violation or penalty will recover a lost life in a needless tragedy, uh, but the court's action seeks to find justice for the worker and their family. Uh, and the background on this case is that an OSHA, OSHA investigation found that ABC Polymer Industries employee suffered fatal injuries after she was pulled into the moving rollers of a plastic extrusion machine. Oh As a result, the agency issued the company one willful citation for failing to provide machine guarding to protect the employees from caught-in and amputation hazards. OSHA also cited the company for lack of specific safety procedures to shut down or isolate stored energy and its failure to install a rail system on both sides of an open platform. Uh, OSHA Regional Administrator Kurt Petermeyer in Atlanta says failing to install and maintain protective guarding on machinery causes far too many serious injuries and deaths. Employers can prevent these types of tragedies, and in this case, ABC Polymer Industries learned that terrible lesson. Uh, the company was founded in September of 1994. They produce extruded polypropylene products, including microsynthetic and macrosynthetic concrete fibers. The company is a major distributor of bulk bags, fibrillated yarns, synthetic snow, and more. Um, under the Occupational Safety and Health Act 1970, employers are responsible for providing safe and healthful workplaces for their employees. OSHA's role is to ensure these conditions for America's working men and women by setting and enforcing standards, providing training, education, and assistance. Uh, so, you know, there's a resolution to this case now, but, but geez, six years after this worker died yeah. in a needless accident, 
Um, and you know, there was, there, there was penalties assessed back in 2018, but that's still, you're looking at a year, you know, six months to a year after the incident. And then even though those penalties weren't paid to, you know, the family of the deceased worker, that was penalties, uh, to the government. And so it's just, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, just, just yet another example of, where bosses and companies and executives violate the law and kill somebody, and, you know, and kill somebody, it takes years for a resolution to come to a case. And even when a resolution comes, it's just a fine that they're going to look at as, you know, um, the cost of doing business where if you or I did something, something half as bad as that. Uh, it would not take nearly that long for us to have con- for us to have serious consequences. Right. I mean, and and I know it's not unusual to to see long trials, for example, uh, in criminal cases. But the difference would be, yeah, if you or not you or I did something anywhere close to this, uh, we would be hanging out in jail or on bond. Yeah. While we awaited resolution, um, it's just a you know a stark reminder of the disparities and how enforcement really plays out in this country. And it's just another example of corporations behaving badly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, yeah, it hurts even more when it's right here in Alabama and it's some of our own neighbors who are the victims of this kind of just corporate malfeasance. Yep. Yep. So, uh, let's look at something a bit lighter. Um, Jordan Peterson on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, uh, gave some advice to young people um, who want a raise. Um, and so that's basically, like, I mean, that's basically the whole thing that we, that's our shtick, right? Is we're, you know, we're we're trying to help people get a raise. That's like the whole thing is we want, your, you know, we, we hope to make your job better by educating you about how other people are doing it by coming together, uh, you know, collective bargaining, unions, all this good stuff. And so this is like kind of our shtick. And so we wanted to, so I I thought it would be interesting to see what his, uh, you know, let's see what his idea is. Um, And you know what? Now that I just thought about this, I should have, what I should have done is gotten like a a text-to-speech thing in Jordan Peterson's voice. I think that they have those on in some AI things, and I should have put all this into his voice so he could play it. But I didn't, so I'm going to have to read it. And I'm not going to attempt a... Um, I'm not going to attempt to do an impression. So apologies for that. But uh, uh, so, so here he says, he, he opens it up with how to negotiate a raise. This is Jordan Peterson. If you want a raise, it will take a lot of courage to step into the office of your boss and say, I want a raise. If they say, we do not have any extra money at the time, And if you accept that and then leave, that is not a good negotiation. Um, And now, you know, up to this point, I'll say that these are are all true. I think it does take a lot of courage to individually do this, uh, ask a boss for a raise. Not necessarily the smartest thing to do, but, you know, takes a lot of courage. Um, And then also, if you just accept what the boss says at face value, not a good negotiation. Also, not a good negotiation if you don't have your coworkers backing you up, right? These are all. So here we go. So, you know, I don't know. We're we're in we're in agreement so far, right? Yeah, not not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, it's always uh, 
ideal to be negotiating for a raise collectively, uh, because that's where your strength comes from. But there are times where perhaps, you know, it's appropriate for you as an individual, either you're mm-hmm. the type of workplace you're in uh, or the type of work you're doing or whatever the situation may be. Um, or, you know, maybe you were owed a raise that you didn't get, mm. in which case there might be a little separate conversation where you would hopefully have your union rep. If you want something, the first thing you have to do is set up options for yourself. Decide whether or not you deserve to have a raise. Okay, I'm a timeout day. <laughs> Decide whether or not you deserve a raise. Okay. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I suppose he wants you to think on whether or not you've earned it. Is is that is that it? Yeah, um, that's probably it. Yeah. I mean, I would say, given that wages have been essentially flat for fifty years in this country, uh, that pretty much everybody who works for somebody else is due a raise. But hey, I maybe there's someone out there who legitimately doesn't deserve it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, like like the boss, but the bosses don't have to ask for raises; they just give it to themselves, right? And so that's part yeah. of the part of the nonsense of our economic system um so decide whether or not you deserve to have a raise you cannot just ask for one you have to make a case for it and now this is you know this is what negotiations are there there is a certain amount of making a case for a raise right and sure and you know and part of that part of that in a union context is actually taking a look at the company's books. Because in a, in a union collective bargaining environment, if you're in negotiations and the company says, we don't have the money. You can say, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Right. right? You can have an information request. And they legally have to say, if that's their rationale, we don't have money, they've got to, they've got to show you the books. And so, and so here in this case, in a union environment, when you're collectively bargaining, actually... You you do need to make a case for why you deserve a raise, but also your boss has to make a case for why you don't deserve a raise, right? Which is not the case if you're bargaining individually. Correct. So those are some important things to, to think about. You cannot just ask for a raise. You have to make a case for one. How do you know if you're in a position to ask for a raise? Part of it is that you have other options. Put your CV or your resume in order, make it tight, and then look around to see what other employment options you have. Options that you would, in fact, take and see what your market value is. Then decide how much of a raise you want and why it would be in your boss's best interest to offer you it. Well, I would say, though, I I do take issue with saying, you know, see what your market value is, because I I think that's sort of a, a, I mean, that's just kind of bullshit. Um, That's not necessarily a true reflection right your employment options in any given situation at any given date does not necessarily mean uh that's your market value mm. and subsequent to that i don't really care about a market value uh i think people have value uh inherently but i i get his point uh and i don't disagree there uh that if you're in a situation where you're you're looking for a raise you ought to be looking See mm-hmm. what other options are out there uh, for a lot of reasons. For one, you may find something better, but also for the research aspect to it, kind of going. And this is something else that unions will do as well is, is research comparable industries. Right. right? Uh, <laughs> when I was on the bargaining team of, of my staff union, one of the 
main things we would do in our, our initial research was to look at, okay, well, what are similar employees and other state mm -hmm. affiliates being paid, right? We're all doing roughly the same kind of work. So what's Georgia doing? What's Mississippi, Tennessee, et cetera? Right. It's the same concept. And, and so I don't disagree there necessarily on that part of it. Um, yeah. How do you know if you're in a position to ask for a raise? Yeah. Um, well, I think that, and I do think that goes beyond just what are your options in terms of in the market. How are you in a position to ask for a raise speaks to deeper issues inside the workplace. Like, mm -hmm. do you have a management structure that is conducive to you even asking for such a thing? Right? Do you even have the opportunity to speak to a literal person with such authority? Because that is an increasing trend in workplaces is that you as a worker don't actually get to interact face to face ever with someone who actually has the authority to give you something as significant as a pay raise. Um, and, and now we're seeing folks who are even being fired via apps and text messages. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and automated emails. And yeah, right. Like this, this whole thing, this whole, the whole advice and, you know, just spoiler is basic. It, it's all premised on this individualism kind of thing that he's, yeah. he's known for. Right. Right. And that's but what I take issue with. In, in so many instances, so many people like this just doesn't like so many employment situations. This just doesn't apply to like Uber. What are you going to do if you're an Uber driver? <clears throat> what are you going to do if you're an Amazon worker? You, you know, call all these, Bezos and yeah, I mean, it, it just does not, it, it doesn't compute in so many, you know, in so, so many instances, this is just like, it, it's, it's just nonsense. Yeah. I mean, well, <clears throat> you know, a lot of it is just, is, is decent enough advice from that individual position. Right. As long as you understand the context that it's, not going to apply in a lot of situations and to a lot of people, yeah. you know, so it's fine. You know, if you're, if you're teaching a personal finance class to some high schoolers or college kids or something, and you know, you want to, to pass along some of this advice so far, what he shared isn't, isn't terribly mm -hmm. controversial. It's just missing some, yeah. some kid greetings. And, and I'll, I'll tell a story at the end of this of, of when I actually, I did a lot of this. I, I did a lot of this when I was working in a restaurant and I actually, and I got a raise. I got a raise, and so I'll tell that story at, at the end of this, and, and but what some issues with that. <clears throat> you need to have options, and you have to negotiate from a position of strength. Correct. Also, I mean, yeah, yeah. Also, you have to know what you want. Then you have to develop strategies for communicating what it is that you're asking for, and you have to be forthright about that. You have to think through the reasons, because otherwise you will not have enough courage to tolerate the conflict that it might entail to withstand the negotiation. Here, very good thing. I mean, this is all, this is great. And this, uh, you know, and there's, there's just a bit, there's just a bit here of like power analysis. Because here he's not talking about, he's not even necessarily talking about market value. This is a power analysis. A very, you know, a, a, you know, a kind of confused one, maybe. But negotiating from a position of strength, developing strategies, tolerating conflict, um, negotiations. Yeah, and, I mean, and that's see, all fair enough. Yeah, this is all good. And this is all things that... Nothing uh, groundbreaking. Nothing groundbreaking, but, but this is something that a bargaining committee would do in a collective sure. bargaining environment. 
If you think you're an agreeable type, one way of fortifying yourself is to understand how much misery and conflict you may be storing up for yourself in the future if you refuse or if you refuse to engage in reasonable negotiation on your own behalf in the present. And this is exactly one of the things that we talk to people that, that, that union organizers tell people when they're considering organizing because that takes, that is a lot of conflict, especially in a place like Starbucks where, you know, the, where the company is just engaging in a scorched earth anti-union campaign. But the thing to think about is how much conflict, how much, you know, in his words, misery are you storing up for yourself in the future if the if Starbucks workers don't organize on a national scale and don't gain a big market share and don't get uh you know pool for themselves a lot of power a lot of power right and that's you know and that's the important thing is that you know all of this stuff is well and good in an individual setting and it's fine and this is this is not bad advice per se but it really really misses i think the a key thing about workplaces and compensation and and it's about power a lot of times it's about much more about power than it is about market value right because market va- what does that even mean market value and we can show the lie here when we just compare Amazon drivers to UPS drivers. What is the market value of a UPS driver? The market value of a UPS driver is not, I mean, they're doing the same thing, more or less, as an Amazon driver. Basically the same thing. I'm sure that the union has set up some more training and there's some more, you know, there's, I'm sure that there's got to be some more specialization because the union has been there so long and they've grown with the company and all this. But the basic thing... At the end of the day, they're delivering packages. At the end of the day, they're delivering packages. And yet their compensation package is more than double what Amazon workers make. I mean, I remember talking to an Amazon... Uh, to an Amazon worker and who was not a delivery driver, but a but a factory worker. And so I... I but I asked her um, how much she thought that... Or how much... I asked her how much the Amazon delivery drivers made. And she said, I don't know, like $16, $17 an hour. And so I asked her how much the unionized UPS d- drivers made. And she said, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe... 18, 19, maybe $20 an hour. And and so I told her, I said, try $35 to $40 an hour after you've topped out. After you've been there on your progression for like four years, I think. Whereas an Amazon driver has no, you know, maybe an Amazon driver after four years, instead of making 16, is maybe making 20, 21, maybe. I don't know, right? But it's not 40. It's definitely not 40. And that's what Teamster drivers are making, plus healthcare, plus retirement, plus, you know, all this other stuff, right? And and so and, and how did they get that? They got it because they they pooled their 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 uh, you know they collectively bargained. It was a power thing. It's not a value thing. It's not a it's not you know it's not that these people individually are any more powerful or any more uh, valuable. So they have more power. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is that. I don't really think there is such a thing as like this objective market value that like somehow we can we can find like yep that's the answer. Um I just it's it's constantly in flux and it is a synthesis of contradictions of power. Um 
and power dynamics and how that plays out mm -hmm. in the marketplace. So, right, you, you have folks who are delivering packages via trucks, doing more or less the same work, drastically different results in terms of compensation and benefits and working conditions. That's a result of those uh, contradictions playing out and the power dynamics at play there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just I don't see that there is that objective you know, market value, quote unquote, that, you know, you could peg to someone. It's it's all in flux. It's all mm -hmm. a fluid dynamic. Uh, so I think that's that is another area where it kind of misses the mark. So, you know, and it is very individualized. And while that's how we're kind of expected to behave and expected mm -hmm. to think and, and I get all that. Uh, but the economy is a social mechanism, right? Uh, it's all social. We have socially, we have a society. I mean, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. We live in a society. Right. Yeah. We live in a society. I don't know how to dress it up much more than that beyond we live in a society. Uh, you are not just one atomized individual operating in the marketplace. We are all dependent on everybody else to make right. this economy go and to make this economy work. Uh, and it's just a matter of who has the power in that situation and who doesn't. And that's the rub. Yeah. Well, and, and so the the thing is, and and I and so, you know, I mentioned the story and, and I did a lot of this um, when I asked for a raise when I worked at the restaurant that I worked at. Um, and so I was a server or I did I did all of the jobs. You know, I, I worked in the back and I served and I, you know, um did managing shifts and which, you know, didn't, didn't give me any hiring or firing power, but you know, uh, they called me a manager so that I could, you know, order the groceries and lock up at night. Right. <laughs> but, right. um, and so I asked for a raise, I had been there for two years. And, and so I said, I was like, all right, look, uh, you know, I'm a really valuable employee, blah, blah. Here's all the reasons that I'm a good employee. Uh, you should give me $3 an hour <laughs> instead of $2 an hour when I'm serving. Um, gotta know your worth. Yeah. I gotta know my worth. And, and, you know, so they did and that, that was helpful enough, but you know, I mean, it was, it was fine. It was a little bit more on, you know, instead of my paychecks being like $12 every two weeks, they were like 50 every two weeks. And so, you know, I don't know, that's a tank of gas and that's not anything to sniff at, but like what happened is that, and I, I just wasn't thinking communally uh, because the rest of the servers, none of them got a raise. And also, by the time I had been working there like three or three and a half years or something, I hadn't gotten another raise. And that's one of the things. And, and, and also, you know, I was only one person. I could have gotten more and everybody could have gotten more if we had come together. Right. And so that, you know, that's another thing is that it just it really leaves out other people who deserve help, too. You know, instead of just thinking about yourself and being selfish, you know. Um, it, it's worth thinking about like how, how you, you know, if you're a, if you're a type of person who is outgoing and who's a, who's, you know, a really valuable employee, then maybe you should think about using that, uh, you know, using, um, to help other folks that you work with, you know, that's something that, that would be worth thinking about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think if you have that capacity, if you're a natural leader in the workplace, um, see how you can parlay that into collective gains. Yeah. Uh, and I did want to mention, we, we got, uh, 
a lot going on in the chat. Um, one of the uh, issues that Jose mentioned was the way part-timers are being treated. You know, we were using UPS and Amazon kind of an example there, uh, but that's not to to dismiss very real issues happening in UPS. Right. Uh, and, and that's exactly right with the part-timers and the way they, they are treated. And we've seen that in other industries, unfortunately, in unionized industries, this trend of, of bringing in part-timers and temporary help and, of course, two tiers in some industries now. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a problem. There's a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. There is a race to the bottom. So there we go. You talk about market value. Well, the capitalists, the folks who have the capital, the folks who employ us, um, are racing to the bottom. And competing amongst each other to drive down the market value, quote unquote, of labor. Uh, so, you know, Teamsters have been able to have more success through UPS, uh, though clearly not enough. Right. But, you know, in Amazon, it's even worse. Where they're lacking representation and they're lacking that collective voice. Uh, well, you know, we're thankful to the unions who are fighting to bring that. Uh, RWDSU, of course, here in Alabama, uh, the Amazon Labor Union up in New York. But it's, yeah, it's it's time for for changes in industry after industry, especially the logistics and delivery industries. I mean, the pandemic I think really exposed some things there. Um, how dependent we were on mm. these workers. Um, how overworked so many of these workers are, and that go, that's across the board, right? UPS, right. Amazon, uh, FedEx, DHL, USPS. There, there are just so many folks who who are being overworked in this industry, and it's time for that to change. Uh, but you know what? I don't think if you just took the Jordan Peterson approach and and walked into your boss's office and said, you know what? I think they're forcing too many deliveries per hour on us. Right. We right. should probably rethink that. Here's me making a case for changing that. Um, yeah. Let me know how that goes. Yeah. But also probably <laughs> just don't do that. Uh, yeah, probably <laughs> probably wise not to do that uh, unless you want to have a target on your back. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of the best ways to get a target on your back is to go off, you know, rogue by yourself. Mm-hmm thinking yeah. that you are going to, you know, transform all these issues and, and transform the workplace and you're going to take on management by yourself. And, um, you know, as, as much as I love to see the fighting spirit, you know, I've been there, done that, and, and I don't advise it. Yeah. I don't advise it. There's a reason you come together with your coworkers. Yeah, there was a, and, I, and I'm going to have Joe stitch this into the clip, but there was a great TikTok uh, that AFSME put out, their national... Um, on their TikTok page that had this guy with a big, like, um, uh, 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 fruit, um, fruit flower basket, you know, arrangement. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Like edible. Or yeah. And an edible arrangement. arrangement kind of yeah. Thing. And so this person in an AFSME shirt is looking at this guy with this edible arrangement thing. And he, and, and she's like, Oh, you know, what's that for? And, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm asking for a raise today or something. And she was like, Oh, you know, you're buttering up the boss. And, and he was like, yeah, but we all got to do what we got to do. And she was like, uh, no, we actually bargain our raises collectively and my scheduled raise kicks in next week, but good luck. <laughs> you know, so, uh, it's, it's a great, great TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. I would much rather, uh, rely on the power of collective bargaining and the threat of withholding our labor 
than the buttering up with edible arrangements and such like that. Yes. Uh, no offense to folks who do that. Hey, if you have a boss that you like and you want to send them flowers or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, we got to do what we got to do. No, yeah, no right. judgment. We all got to survive. Maybe if, there's a better way. Uh, you know, <laughs> if that's what helps you survive and, and, and yep. you know, keep your keep your nose clean and stay out of trouble. I get it. But mm-hmm. uh, it's no substitute for collective power. Um, so, uh, Sid mentions in the chat that they have a great parody ad from the seventies and yeah, we've covered that. We played that on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Check that out. If you haven't seen it, Adam, uh, so we do a labor history segment every month. What happened in January? Yeah. Let's do some January labor history. It's the end of the month. All right. Let me, uh, switch this camera around. Sorry about that. So we've had very few technical glitches today. I, I'm I'm very proud to say I appreciate some of Ben's work on in the past week to kind of clean some things up for us. Um, really, the only glitch we've had is that it's just been a little bit slow. So I do apologize for that. Some of the transitions today. Um, but aside from that, everything seems to be okay. All right, let's do this. Closing out the month of January, I wanted to take a few minutes to share some of the January anniversaries in labor history. As with every month, I compile this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a planned book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network. I want to make sure I give them full credit. Uh, Shout out as well to the Zen Education Project, which is another great source. Uh, you can check out their This Day in History post on social media, hashtag TDIH. Definitely follow those. You know, those of you who are regular listeners know that I'm much less online uh, than Jacob. But for those of you who are into that kind of thing, check out hashtag TDIH for some great stuff from Zen Education Project. I tried to focus on uh, labor issues primarily in these uh, anniversaries. So we're going to start out, though, with January 1st. It was the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation becoming law. Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, issued in September 1862, became law on January 1st, 1863. Of course, the proclamation only freed slaves in the Confederate states because Lincoln was wary of antagonizing those southern states that had remained loyal to the Union. Lincoln was morally opposed to slavery, but questioned the constitutionality of abolishing it outright. Eventually, he came around and paved the way for the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery throughout the U.S., except for certain situations, as you're well aware. So while the proclamation was arguably a more symbolic decree than a practical one, it was a transition point where the Union war effort became further entwined, not just with preserving the Union, but abolition of slavery inside that union. Uh, And for that reason, it's worth remembering. January 3rd was the birthday of Lucretia Mott, born in 1793 and living until 1880. Mott was a white activist in the women's rights and abolitionist movements. Offended by the exclusion of women from the anti-slavery movement, she helped organize the Seneca Falls Convention to address women's rights and abolition. She later became the first president of the American Equal Rights Association, an organization aimed at achieving equality for women and African Americans. 
January 5th was the 120th anniversary of Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock. Kiowa Chief Lone Wolf sued Secretary of the Interior Hitchcock, claiming that Native American tribes had been forced onto reservations under the Medicine Lodge Treaty and that they had been defrauded of their land by the acts of Congress in violation of the treaty. In a disgusting decision, the Supreme Court held that Congress could unilaterally nullify treaties between the U.S. and Native tribes. The consequences were predictably de devastating for the tribes. Another reminder of the anti-human legacy of the U.S. Supreme Court and the imperialist oppression of our indigenous brothers and sisters. January 5th was also the 100th anniversary of the Rosewood Massacre. After a white woman wrongfully accused Jesse Hunter, a black man, of assault, local white men launched a manhunt and lynched another black man, Sam Carter, for allegedly assisting Hunter's escape. After several nights of tension and violence between the black and white residents of Rosewood, Florida, on January 5th, a mob of two to three hundred white men went on a rampage, killing thirty to forty black men, women, and children, and burning the town to the ground. January 11th is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. The goal of this day is to raise awareness of and vigilance for the millions of human trafficking victims around the globe with the aim of eradicating this insidious crime. And we often hear about human trafficking in the context of, of crime and you know, sex workers and, and things of that nature. Um, but let's not forget that human trafficking is taking place across the world and is unfortunately prevalent in industries across the world. Uh, I know one of the most high-profile examples would be the cocoa and chocolate industry, uh, which my understanding, has historically relied upon uh, child labor and uh, human trafficking to complete that labor. January 13, 1893, saw the birth of the Independent Labor Party in Britain with James Keir Hardy as its leader as they sought to advance working-class candidates in Parliament and build a labor politics outside the middle-class Liberal Party. January 14, 1868, the South Carolina Constitutional Convention met with a majority of black delegates, adopting a constitution that provided for all people regardless of race, economic class, or gender. It was a progressive document written in the aftermath of the Civil War, when in 1868 state constitutions across the South were rewritten by both black and white delegates. In the years that followed, Reconstruction was prematurely ended, with Northern industrialists and the federal government abandoning the South to the reactionary, anti-democratic violence of the former planter class. In state after state, brief periods of interracial, interracial governance were at times gradually and at other times sharply ended by white supremacist rule. But it's a, it's a good reminder that often in American history we tell the story as if it's a uh, a, a just a steady slope upwards of progress, right? That we're always just marching forward in progress. And that's not quite true. Uh, we, we move forward, we move backwards, uh, and on and on. It's not necessarily uh, the straight line of progress uh, because we saw true progress, at least the potential of it, in the aftermath of the Civil War, only for those hopes to be dashed away. January 16th was, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Day the federal holiday at least. It's observed on the third Monday of January, around the time of King's birthday on the 15th. 
Martin Luther King Jr. was not just a prominent leader in the civil rights movement and an Alabama icon for justice, he was a dedicated friend and champion of the American labor movement. Someone who was dedicated to opposing militarism, empire, poverty, and bigotry, right? Uh, we often forget about uh, Dr. King's anti-war work, his work on behalf of poor people and on behalf of the labor movement, and it's worth remembering. January 17th was the 130th anniversary of the American overthrow of the Queen of Hawaii. I won't uh, try to pronounce her name and make a fool of myself, but it was the overthrow. Um, recognizing the strategic and economic value of Hawaii, a group of Americans and U.S.-born Hawaiian citizens staged a coup against the independent kingdom and established a provisional government with Sanford B. Dole as its president. U.S. President Cleveland tried to restore the Queen to power, but stopped short of overthrowing the illegal Dole government. Ultimately, Hawaii was officially annexed to the U.S. in 1898 and became the 50th state in 1959. Indigenous Hawaiians are still fighting for equal rights. That wasn't the only American coup on that day, unfortunately. January 17th, 1961 was the execution of Patrice Lumumba, democratically elected Prime Minister of the Republic of the Congo. The coup, backed by the Americans and the Belgians, is arguably one of the most significant Western interventions in Africa during the Cold War era. It's one of those great what-ifs, at least in my mind, and when we look at world history, and particularly in Africa after the Cold, or during the Cold War, what if Lumumba had not been murdered? and had been allowed to rule in the Congo uh, with his democratic mandate. It's one of the most uh, interesting what-ifs out there for me in, in more contemporary history. So I want to send solidarity with all peoples exploited and oppressed by the forces of empire. On that note, January 18th was the 80th anniversary of the first Jewish uprising in Warsaw Ghetto. The German military entered the Warsaw Ghetto, planning to deport a portion of the population. The residents believed the Germans were planning to deport everyone in the area. This time, the Germans were met with armed resistance. This urban uprising in German-occupied Europe resulted in a new sense of hope for the Warsaw Jewish population and sparked rebellions elsewhere. 230 years ago, on January 21, 1793, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, King Louis XVI of France was guillotined on the charge of conspiring with foreign countries for the invasion of France. During the revolution, the king had attempted to flee to Austria for assistance. Ten months later, his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, was also guillotined. Just a reminder to what happens to elites who uh, get a little too big for the britches. January 22nd is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. This landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision determined that women had a constitutional right to an abortion. Nearly every state outlawed abortion at the time, except in limited circumstances, leading more than a million women each year to seek illegal, unsafe procedures. The justices drew on the 1st, 4th, 9th, and 14th Amendments in making their decision, which has been at the center of an ongoing debate about a woman's right to choose what happens to her body. We mark this 50th anniversary months removed from the Supreme Court gutting abortion rights under Roe 
and renewed crackdowns on abortion rights by right-wingers across the country. Sad to see us moving backwards on this front. And I hope some of what we saw in November's election in places like Kansas and Kentucky indicate that there will be an electoral backlash to these anti-choice politicians. January 22nd was also the 140th anniversary of the Supreme Court striking down the Force Act. The Force Act, commonly known as the Ku Klux Klan Act or the Civil Rights Act of 1871, sought to extend federal protections to African Americans in states where racial terror and violence ran rampant. The act was applied to indict Sheriff R.G. Hari and 19 accomplices for the unprovoked beating of four black men. The court's decision struck down the Force Act, leaving black Americans even more unprotected from pervasive racial terrorism in the South. January 23rd is the 60th anniversary of the arrest of Patricia Stevens Dew. Patricia Stevens Dew was arrested for setting foot in the whites-only section of the Florida Theater in Tallahassee, Florida. She began fighting segregation laws at a young age and participated in many student protests throughout her early life. At one protest in Tallahassee, Stevens Dew was tear-gassed in the eyes by police, causing permanent damage to her sight. Stevens Dew continued her fight for social justice and civil rights throughout her life. January 26th is it. 160th anniversary of the authorization to recruit black troops to the Union Army. Prior to January 1863, black troops, both free and enslaved, were not permitted to fight for the Union Army. Shortly after Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, the governor of Massachusetts was given permission by the U.S. War Department to recruit black troops. However, while black troops began to form new regiments for the Union Army, they were consistently led by white officers. On that note, a little fun fact, it's believed that the first integrated fighting unit of Americans led by a black officer was actually not in the U.S. Army at all. It was in the International Brigades over in Spain uh, during the Spanish Civil War. So shout out to Oliver Law. Many considered him to be the first black officer to lead an integrated American fighting unit. January 27th is the 50th anniversary of the Paris Peace Accords. Signed by South Vietnam, the U.S., North Vietnam, and the Viet Cong, the Paris Peace Accords marked the formal end of the Vietnam War and U.S. military involvement in the region. U.S. troops did begin to withdraw. However, the war continued until 1975. More than 58,000 American troops died in Vietnam. It's estimated that between 1 to 2.5 million Vietnamese died during the conflict, along with hundreds of thousands of Cambodians and Laotians. And of course, the criminals responsible, from Richard Nixon to Henry Kissinger to Lyndon Johnson, never faced any consequences for their crimes. January 28th is the 60th anniversary of Harvey Gantt's enrollment at Clemson University, becoming the first black student after attending after the university was ordered to admit him by the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1963. January 28th is also the birthday of Jose Marte, the Cuban poet, philosopher, and freedom fighter, born this day in 1853. He fought for Cuba's independence from Spain. He also argued against the uh, threat of U.S. expansionism into Cuba. In 1869, Marty founded the newspaper, uh, which he published many of his poems in. 
He was arrested in Havana and deported to Spain, where he published his pamphlet, Political Imprisonment in Cuba. In 1895, he returned to Cuba to fight for its independence and died on the battlefield. January 29th is the 160th anniversary of the Bear River Massacre. U.S. volunteer soldiers attacked a Shoshone village on the pretext that they had attacked white settlers in the area. In fact, the settlers had stolen all the land and water from the Native Americans in the area. Initially, the destitute Shoshone were able to hold off the soldiers, but the battle soon devolved into a massacre with mostly unarmed men, women, and children being slaughtered indiscriminately. The Shoshone death toll has been estimated at between three to 400, compared to 14 casualties among U.S. troops. And finally, January 29th is the birthday of Thomas Paine. Shout out to friend of the show, Professor Harvey J. K., who is a Tom Paine scholar. K. argues that Paine's radical democratic impulses have continued to aspire, inspire Americans for the fight for progressive change over the past couple centuries. And I know he would be disappointed if he wasn't included in this month's labor history anniversaries. So, a little light this month on the more traditional labor history stories, such as strikes. Uh, some of that we can just chalk up to timing. It was some weird anniversaries. Uh, for example, the monumental Bread and Roses strike started 111 years ago this month. Kind of an odd anniversary. Uh, there were a lot of important anniversaries, obviously, when it comes to race, when it comes to the violence of white supremacy, state oppression, and imperialism. In particular, it's hard to take the legitimacy of the U.S. Supreme Court seriously when you consider some of these decisions that I discussed today. I mean, it was like every week, There's here's an anniversary of the Supreme Court taking rights away from people, or, or, or condoning violence against people. It's, it's, it's hard to take the U.S. Supreme Court seriously when you think about that history. So... I uh, just want to encourage folks to continue looking at labor history and to learn from our history as working people, as working class people. We have our own rich history of struggle, and uh, it's worth remembering and remembering our struggles for interracial people power here in the South and across the nation and the globe. Absolutely. Uh, and <clears throat> with that, we'll do... Um We'll do something that's a bit less, uh, a bit less serious, uh, not not as, um, you know, not as important, but uh, but still, but but maybe a bit, uh, you know, maybe a little fun. You want to um, end on a light note? Yeah, yeah, maybe we we can end on a light note, and that's with this. Um, well, I don't know. It's kind of it's pretty deranged, I, in a you know, it, actually. But uh, what I'm talking about is this ongoing saga with Steven Crowder. Um, and his being really upset about the contract offer that he got from the Daily Wire. And Candace Owens works for the Daily Wire. She is uh, one of their hosts, uh, been very prolific, very uh, radical, um, you know, in, in the bad way. And she, for some reason, attacked workers in her attack on Steven Crowder. So I'll just, you know, I'll, we'll play this clip and I want you, you know, I, I just, I have to wonder how this appeals to 
to the to the actual working people in her audience because there has to be I mean there there have to be there are working people in her audience that she's talking about here and that she's so clearly you know I mean these people talk about liberal elites and snobbery and uh, and Adam and I agree with them in this critique a lot of times we see you know we see what they're saying and and we and we agree and we say yes you know a lot of people a lot of liberals quote unquote can be really weird about um about working people and about people from the south particularly but especially like poor working people you know there's just some weird paternalistic uh, you know, snobbery that goes on among liberal elites. But I don't understand how the folks who say that in one breath don't hear this from Candace Owens and say the exact same thing about her. Let's listen to what she had to say. Which is why it's not worth us saying anything more, in my opinion. I don't know what the Daily Wire is going to say about it further. But the, the reason why this doesn't really matter is I think that people are really seeing... Uh, just how nasty what you did was. And I, I think that we I would hope that you would come to terms with the fact that you owe everybody an apology, that this was never necessary, that you can start whatever company you want. You don't get to step in like a socialist, and it is socialist-like. These are the demands that you hear, and people are trying to establish a union when the Amazon workers have walked out because they have decided that they are worth more, that they should have three-hour lunch breaks. They've gotten their contract from Amazon, and they realize that they there are lunch breaks for only one hour, and that they're required to show up to work, and they think they should be able to work from home for three days a week post-COVID, and they walk out, and they want to stage a union and this this is the big con it's amazon no this is the free markets and so to tim pool what i would say and i like tim pool and i think that he is always very kind to all of his guests that he has on his show but when he says that he doesn't think 50 million dollars is enough i would like to say that the free markets will answer that question right it doesn't look like anybody's come to him with an offer that's bigger Well, you heard it here, folks. If you ask for a raise, that's socialism. I mean, there's just so much there that's so, I mean, just so gross. I mean, for, for one, the idea that Amazon workers have an hour for lunch is, abs I mean, and, and you know, and you can. they're asking for three hours for lunch. I, right. I mean, just look at, I mean, look at her set. What look kind at of lunch breaks set. does she take every day? Yeah. Look at, I mean, she's wearing this fancy ass silk robe, you know, in this, you know, expensive looking studio talking about how Amazon workers, presumably, because she even said they take an hour lunch with disdain as if they wouldn't be worth an hour lunch. I think they should get an hour for lunch and I think they should be paid for it. And the idea that, that, <laughs> the idea that a company could be exploitative is just, she pretends not to understand that because there's no way, there's no way that she can actually believe that companies can't be exploitative. But if you admit that, as Crowder has, if you admit that like Crowder has, then the whole, this whole conservative capitalist uh, propaganda really starts, you start pulling on that thread. If you pull on that thread and you say that you know, actually a contract that a worker agrees to voluntarily 
can be exploitative. You start pulling on that thread and really the rest of it starts to come pretty quick after that, right? And so you can't, you can't admit that. Yeah, and I think that's why she sort of frames it as if it's actually workers who are the exploiters or the aggressor in, in this, right? That they are the ones who are greedy. Um, you know, you give them an hour for lunch, they'll want three hours for right. lunch. And, and I, I think you're right on that. And, and, and one of the things that, to me, um, I think I'm, I'm starting to take away from some of these clips that we watch of these right-wing nuts is that there's these contradictions within the right-wing ethos in, in like conservative politics because they are welded to free market ideology and to celebrating capital and capitalist, but at the same time, uh, capital seeks profits and it is willing to cannibalize anything and everything to squeeze out more profits. That includes going after the status quo at times, right? And so conservatives sometimes see their traditions under attack. They say it's wokeness, they say it's liberals, they say it's, you know, anything and everything, but quite often it's just business, right? Right. The reason you see more diversity on advertisements now, the reason why you see interracial couples or, or homosexual couples on, on Cheerio commercials and things like that, I don't think it's because these companies are woke, whatever that means. I don't think it's because these companies have some uh, deep hidden agenda to, um, you know, go after white people or, or whatever it is that, that some folks think. It's just business. They just look at the demographics and say, how many markets can we attract in one right. advertisement? Hey, if we have one white person and one black person. That's more than if we just had one of one race, right? I mean, it's just common sense. Um, but there's that contradiction there that capital, by seeking profits constantly, by seeking to uh, always grow, right? You can't stagnate. You're, you're always looking to grow. You're always looking for new opportunities to squeeze a profit. That means traditions can crumble under that weight. Uh, that means things will change from time to time, right? And those are, those are things that, that bother conservatives. Right. Seeing those changes, seeing traditions under attack. Um, but, you know, that, that's the, that's the rub there is capital doesn't care about your traditions. If it's more profitable to do, do away with them. Right. So if it's more profitable to pay lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion and to have diverse advertisements, um, to put, uh, you know, catchy slogans on the football field. That's what they're going to do. Right. And, and, and to, to conflate that with socialism is just so absurd because it shows how, I mean, it just shows the deficits in their ideology that, that clearly you don't understand either socialism or capitalism. Right. Uh, because, you know, how can you say that venture capitalists, that Wall Street firms, are socialistic. How can you say that neoliberal imperialists are socialistic? It, it just defies reason. Um, and so, you know, those things just, they're always baffling. And it's, you know, these mixture of contradictions within this, this far right uh, political culture, it's very frustrating to even 
be exposed to. And I imagine it's quite confusing to the people who are ingesting this stuff every day. I, I don't see how it isn't because, and especially as they are trying to, you know, they've been trying this out for a few years, this idea that, oh, the Republicans, the conservatives are actually representative of working class people. And there's nothing but, new under the sun. I mean, right. it, this ain't the first time that uh, Republicans have, have done that. But um, if if the working, if you don't include Amazon workers in your conception of the working class in the year of our Lord 2023, how, you know, because clearly she does not see Amazon workers as a constituency that she needs to appeal to. Well, and I think this goes back to something we've talked about before in the show where uh, there's class as it relates to the economy and production and labor versus management and who owns what, right? Class in a traditional economic understanding of the, of the term. But then there's class as like a cultural identity and a cultural affect. Um, the way you dress, the way you look, mm. uh, the music you listen to, right? And so what I see from Republicans is when they are doing this posturing. It's like cosplay. It's, it's cosplay. It's in, you know, they want you to imagine and they are imagining a particular type of worker. You know, maybe it's a blue collar worker. Maybe they're not. But, you know, it's more important that they listen to country music and they mm. go to church and they drive a big pickup truck. Right. And they watch regular TV. You know, mm -hmm. they're not on all that fancy stuff. Uh, they have problems with Hollywood. It's it's all a cultural identity, um, not even tied to their relationship to the economy, right. um, which is all in a roundabout way. Doing the same thing that Reagan did when he showed up to announce his campaign at the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, to proclaim his love of states' rights. Mm. I mean, it wasn't super subtle. Uh, in the 40 years since then, they have tried to become more subtle, uh, right? But there is a, there is a particular type of worker they're thinking of who looks a certain way, has a certain skin color, has a certain religious background. Um, and so I think when they're talking about appealing to the working class or working Americans, yeah, they're not talking about Amazon employees, Walmart employees, McDonald's employees. We know they're not talking about Starbucks mm. baristas, right? They're not talking about teachers. God forbid. They're not talking about public sector employees, right? Because they're, they're just lazy and, and uh, incompetent and can never be fired for their poor performance. So, okay, you've eliminated all public sector workers. Um, you've eliminated basically all the service industry. Right. So who is it that counts as a worker in their eyes? Right. Um, and that's, that's something that I think liberals also are, are guilty of in treating class as this cultural identity. Uh, or cultural affect and not something that is actually directly your relationship to production. What do you own? Who do you own? Uh, uh, are you selling your labor? Or are you buying labor? I mean, that's the sort of questions you have to ask when you're looking at, you know, the class dynamics of our country. Uh, they're not looking at that. Um, and it, they, it's so confused as to, 
you know, proclaim that big banks and, and large capitalists are themselves socialists. Yeah, um, obviously. It, it's, it, it's, it's bizarre. bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just bizarre. bizarre. <laughs> and and that's why sometimes I struggle to even, like, talk through some of this because, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like, you know, some of this stuff I, I sort of made sense out of when I was a teenager. Mm. And it's like, how do I... I can't like unlearn what socialism and capitalism mean and how, how they're different. Um, and so for me, a lot of this rhetoric, it just comes off incredibly ignorant. Yeah. If you, if you are saying that, uh, BlackRock is socialist, that Steven Crowder is socialist, that Nancy Pelosi is socialist, you're full of shit. Yeah. You're an idiot. You're confused. You're wrong. You should read more. I'm sorry. Or 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 work like in the like go I don't know go work in like I don't know I I it's and if you're a working class person and you say those things and you believe those things and you hear what I just said, I mean no disrespect to you because frankly you've been misled. Right. Uh, now if you're you know a business owner or if you're one of these media. Uh, professionals or whatever you can you know eat shit but if you are a working person and you do listen to people like candace owens and 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 crowder and the like and ben shapiro i'm sorry that you have been sucked into this i'm sorry that you have been um, exposed to such misinformation and delusion and ignorance and uh, i mean i want you to know that you can find out more there's a lot more out there to be discovered. And I certainly was raised to be that kind of way. Um, you know, if one little thing here or there along my path in life had gone a slightly different, I may be one of those people. Mm-hmm. I very well could have been. Um, so I just, uh, you know, sorry to go off on that tangent there, but. If you are listening to us, you're one of those people who buys into that. You're one of those people who likes to troll our comment section, right? Because you're a fan of these folks. Just, just consider that maybe these people aren't telling you the truth. And I'm not saying you have to go read Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and report back to us on what you've learned. <laughs> Right? I'm not assigning you a book review, but there's there's a lot more out there than what's being presented by right-wing media and, frankly, by liberal media as well. Uh, there's a spectrum of opinion, of ideology, of analysis, and you're better off exposing yourself to all of it and, and, and learning from, from all of it. Um, I wouldn't have the ideas I have today if I hadn't engaged with a variety of stuff stuff that i didn't agree with at the time stuff that i no longer agree with right i think that's important just to for intellectual development yes so yeah that's very yeah for sure for sure so uh and sid mentioned small business owners what the republicans are referring to when they say worker and you you exactly right right it's the mom and pop shop owner Mm mm-hmm Yep. Absolutely. 
and with that, uh, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up for this week. Uh, Adam and I are gonna be back tomorrow for a double overtime, and I'm gonna be interviewing Adam in a more of a podcasty format as opposed to like a a big production radio. Type yeah, we're gonna of do thing. kind of a like do. a working people style. Yeah. Episode. And then we're gonna switch it up, and he's gonna interview me, and then uh, we're probably gonna bring on uh, bring David into the studio at some point to do that with him. Yes, yeah, you know it's been a couple years uh, since this project started. Um, I know some of you listening may have just kind of been turned onto the program recently, um, so we thought it might be uh, it might be relevant for folks to you know if we just kind of sat down and interviewed each other about how we got here why we do what we do, why we think what we think. And um, if nothing else, you'll have that context. You know, if you tune in, you'll kind of know a little bit about our stories and, and how we ended up in this place. So I hope folks will uh, find it interesting. Um, I, I'm a little nervous because I'm, you know, don't prefer to be on that side of the interview. <laughs> uh, so we'll see. We'll see how deep it gets. But uh, yeah, and I appreciate everyone who's tuned in this weekend. I uh, appreciate everyone who's liked and shared and, and done all that good stuff. Your support is the only way we can keep going. Um, we've alluded to it before. Uh, I'll mention again that we do have a lot in the works to, to grow this program this year and to have a better program uh, with more outreach and, and better and more content. So uh, definitely keep your eyes peeled for the survey in the next couple of days. We'll get that out on all of our social media channels uh, as well as email. And uh, any input you have is definitely appreciated. And uh, just just do us a favor and uh, pass it along. Share it with folks. Tell folks about the Valley Labor Report. And if you think what we're doing is important, uh, if you believe that Alabama workers and Southern workers deserve to have you know, a platform, uh, that's what we're trying to do, and we're going to try to do it even better. So thanks for, for everyone's support. Um, and my last thing is I'll shout out. Uh, I see a shout out from Austin in the chat. Thank you, Austin. It's great to see you. Austin was one of the numerous union members who came to the uh, Thirsty Friday event last night for the North oh, Alabama yeah. Labor Council. We didn't mention that on the main show, but uh, worth mentioning. Jacob, I appreciate your efforts putting that together. Um, that was a lot of fun. I was working a split shift yesterday, so I could just only pop in for a few minutes. But uh, it was good to see some of my machinist brothers there. And uh, I know you said there was a letter carrier. Letter there carrier. Was, uh, Austin from NASA. Uh, there was a few federal employees from my union. Yeah, there was a good yeah. bit of folks there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was there for IATSE, and um, it was it was yeah. Good event. Good to see Union brothers and sisters out and about. Uh, we're going to keep doing more of that. So thanks, everybody. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next week. Or see you tomorrow. And then see you again next week.